How do I work less and earn more? Our next guest is known to work just three days a week, makes a nice income, and has a lot of advice for you, especially as people are talking about recessions. They want to ensure that they have a secure gig. People ask us about side hustles. He's the, he's the man for this. He's written books, working less, earning more, recession-proof careers, and he's a natural speaker. So I give you Jeff Cohn, an amazing story, grew up secular, now religious, living in New Jersey. You'll enjoy this one. Without further ado, Jeff Cohn. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Salaries, uh, side hustles, income streams. I want to get into all of it with you, Jeff, today. And uh, first, want to hear who you are, what's your story, and why are we talking to you on this beautiful Tuesday? For sure. And first, let me just say thank you for having me. And can we give a shout out to Rabbi Simon Taylor, who brought us together? That's right. Good man at the OU. And the OU is doing really, really cool things. And they were the initial sponsor um, to fund what we're doing and got us off the ground. So we're extremely appreciative to Simon, Rabbi Hauer, Moshe Bain, um, all the way through. If you've ever read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, so he talks about connectors, which are people who can help make an idea go viral, and they just know a lot of people in their network, and they have a way of bringing them together. That is exactly what Simon Taylor has been in my life, and it's it's why we're really together today. I love Malcolm uh, Gladwell's books. Um, really gets you thinking. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, so who are you, Jeff, and why do we have you here today? So let me start by asking, have you ever had on a guest who wasn't raised religious so was, far with Kosher Money? I was money? looking through the notes. I don't think so offhand. My brother is going to tell me afterwards, oh, you forgot about so-and-so. <laughs> I don't think so. Right. So this is an important point because I think that people who are raised religious versus not have different outlooks on career and money. And as we continue getting to know each other, my story evolves as I become more religious and my perspective changes. But I was born and raised in New City, New York. Do you know that town? Sure. It actually has a growing Orthodox Jewish population right now. Correct. So Muncie has spread its wings and is taking over New City. But when I was growing up, I was literally... Minutes away from Muncie, but being raised in public school, completely secular. And so my perspective on religious life was from the outside looking in. Uh, and I want to tell you one like quick story like sure. from my childhood. that kind of like It points out what I thought about religion. So when I was growing up, my mother was pursuing an MBA. And so on Thursday nights, my father was responsible for dinner. So to him, that meant stop and get a pizza, right? So he would come home and you know how many slices are in a pie? Eight. Eight, right. So he would give three slices to me, Mm -hmm. three slices to my sister, Alyssa, and then he would keep two. And then he'd lean back and be like, look at this generous father. Make sure his his kids have more than him. So this went on for like a couple of years. One day he picks me up after basketball practice and he says, we're just going to stop and get the pie on the way home. Great. We walk in, he orders the pie and the man behind the counter says, oh, Mr. Cohen, so nice to see you. While you're waiting, would you like your usual two slices? I was like... Dad's having four, right? He's not having less than us. <laughs> now, now, that story is not about making fun of my father, who I love dearly. But the point is that a lot of times you form opinions based on like imperfect information. Mm. You don't have the whole story. And so being in New City and looking at religious life as a child, I had like no information about what it was other than 
these people are dressing funny and I know they have all these restrictions of things they can't do. And this is a world that I would like never, ever want to be part of. But it was just because I didn't know really what it was all about. I had no idea about the community side of it and things like that. So as I got older and started to understand a little bit more about the world and now I'm like now happy to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. But my earliest impression was like, this is not not a world that I'm going to be in. What was your first exposure or more meaningful exposure to this world and how did you end up gravitating towards it? So it turns out that my wife was actually, was religious when she was raised. Mm-hmm. The family went a little bit off, which she said she had to go off the path to find me to bring me back on. Mm. But she was in Rabbi Benjamin Yudin's world in Fairlawn when she was growing up. And her father, who was living with us, who was very sick, when he passed away, his his dream was to be buried in Israel. Mm-hmm. And my wife, Carol, said, there's one person on this planet who I think could make that happen, and it's Benjamin Yudin. So she called him, he made that happen, and when he paid a shiva visit to our house, we're not religious at all at this point, Mm -hmm. he said, you know, I have this Monday night class, come and check it out. And I went, not because I thought I was on any kind of journey, just because it was a nice thing to do in in my father-in-law's memory, who I had a very nice relationship with. And I'll never forget the first class, he said to me, oh, Jeff, nice to see you, can you go in the sanctuary and get an extra chumash? I didn't know what that word meant. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what it's like to be a beginner. Mm -hmm. I went in the sanctuary and I got one of every color book I could find. And I just like handed him this big stack. And and this man is so good at Kirov that he goes, Booby, I was going to use all these books. You saved me so much time. Mm-hmm. So if he hadn't done that, I might have been like one and done with religion. Wow. But it kind of got us turned on to it. And he started suggesting, you know, check out a yeshiva because, you know, your kids are getting ready to be educated. Mm-hmm. It was the first time we put a keep on my son's head and we walked through yeshiva and we're like, we're looking at him. We're like, this thing belongs on his head. Like, mm-hmm. I think this is this is the world. And it just kind of goes from there. Eating kosher, moving to a community, you know, keeping Shabbos. We kind of like did all those steps. Uh, the clincher was the first time we kept Shabbos. My son was only four at the time. He said, Mom and Dad, this was my favorite day I ever had with you. Wow. And we were like, we thought he was probably not going to like Shabbos because it would be a day of no. Mm-hmm. No TV, right. no games, restrictions. no driving restrictions. But he was trying to say that we were present with him. You know, we just spent the day with him. It was like a real family day, which when you're in the secular world, you know, every day you're like on the go. And so he really, even at four, could see kind of the beauty of Shabbos. And that was like very powerful for us. Love that. And and I want to get into what you do. But tell me, when you were growing up, what was your exposure to money? Um, how did your parents view it or at least communicate money to you? What were your thoughts on it? So there's, there's a phrase I've learned as an adult that I didn't know as a child, but it's called parental footprint. And it basically means that you're growing up in one family and your parents have a perspective on career, money, parenting, the relatives. And because you're only in this one family, it's kind of all you know and you take a lot of it as fact. Mm-hmm. And so there were, there were two things that my parents were very, very big on. So one of them was pick a career, join a company and stay for 35, 40 years and just like work your way up the corporate ladder. And that's exactly what my father did. So I was watching him model the safety and security of progressing through your career. And it worked out well for him. So, you know, he had a nice retirement. And so he's very happy. And so he's a big believer in that slow and steady progression. The second thing was to always live within your means. Mm-hmm. It's like a big deal. And there, there was a story when I was growing up, we, we had friends who would pick us up for carpool for sports and, and you know, school functions and things like that. And they picked us up in a very fancy sports car. It made like a big impression on me because my parents were driving like, you know, Honda Accord, like regular typical cars. 
But once a week, I'd get in a super fancy sports car. And then one day we went to their house for dinner and it was like boiling in their house. Mm. And I said to my dad, I'm like, am I the only one feeling like I'm sweating here? And he said, this is an important lesson for you, Jeff. Like this family put their money into the sports car, not into air conditioning. And he's like, I want you to remember that. Like you, you'll be making money when you're older. You can use it for external facing things or you can use it for things that are like essential to your own comfort. And it really like stuck with me. And my wife and I really tried to do that as we're like raising our own family. Like, how do you value money and what should you be spending it on? Wow. I really like that. So tell me about your, and and I know people are going to write in, oh, you should have asked a more cure of questions. <laughs> and there's always this balance between who do we have on kosher money and inspiration for the nation. And there's a real story. Maybe we can get back to the cure of later mm-hmm. in the episode. Uh, but tell me about your career trajectory, how you got your start working, and let's go all the way through. For sure. So following, I guess, my parents' parental footprint, I went to the University of Pennsylvania And they had a dual degree program. So I was able to get a psychology degree, like a BA from the liberal arts school. And then I also got from the Wharton Business School, a BS in economics, and went to work at American Express after graduation in marketing. And my mindset was, I got this steady job, and I'm just going to like keep climbing. And in fact, at that time, American Express owned American Express Financial Advisors. Mm -hmm. And one of the perks was they would match you up with a financial advisor. So I'm 21. I'm starting at this company in like a mid five figure type salary. And the advisor says, look, you're 21. Let me show you what your net worth is going to be when you're 61. So if you'll just commit the next 40 years to American Express, not that he was selling me on that particular company, but he was just saying, look, you'll you'll probably get this amount of raise each year. This will be your bonus. This is what you can contribute to the 401k. And I had this chart that I went home with of showing what I was going to be worth when I was 61. I showed it to my parents and they were like, yeah, that's exactly how it works. This is this is what happened to us. And I want to be clear that I, it wasn't like I was upset or thinking, huh, I, this is a 40-year commitment to make this happen. But when, you, when you're 21 and someone's saying you're going to commit double the amount of years that you've been on earth in order to make this happen, it just kind of stuck with me like, okay, this is what my dad did, but now my eyes have been opened to, is, is this exactly what I want to do? It's like all being laid out in front of me. So it was the first inkling of maybe there's another way that I want to manage my career beyond that footprint that my parents gave me. Was it something about, and I know our parents are very focused on the safe approach to making money, don't take risks, and that worked for them. But we're living in in a time now where, and even back then it started to develop, where there are other ways to make money. Is that, what, is that what sort of stood out to you, where I have options? So at the time, when I was looking at that graph, and I thought maybe this is not exactly how I want to spend my career, I didn't know what the alternative was, again, because I wasn't raised in a family where people were starting businesses or buying real estate, writing books. Like That wasn't even in my mindset. Right. But I got very lucky that my first boss at American Express had a real big influence on me. When I had my first annual performance review, she said, this is going to be a little different than what you'd expect. I could spend the full hour pointing out your development areas and the things that you have to work on. And then we could spend the next two years focused on these development areas. So, but the reality is the things that you're not good at, the best I can hope for is to make you average at them. So you'll never compete with someone who has a natural strength in an area that you're not good at. Mm. She said, I'm going to take this performance view differently. I'm going to tell you two things that I've seen that you're exceptional at. And she said, you're a really good writer and a really good speaker, like a good public speaker. 
And she said, I want to focus the next couple of years on funneling projects to you that highlight these strengths. And let's get you like even better at those things. And that was like another piece of the puzzle for me of saying, if I'm ever going to do something besides just kind of climb at American Express, I better figure out what I'm good at. And could that be packaged up in a different way than just climbing the corporate ladder? So like that was like another piece that helped me understand that. I know we mentioned in the in the call um, prior about what were the impacts on your career trajectory? What was the greatest impact? What would you say, um, you know, you're an American Express. There's a lot to learn in corporate. Um, sure. But what, what made the biggest impact on your career? And then let's get into this idea of side hustles and income streams. Sure. So I had made it from kind of the analyst level to the manager level at American Express. And we had this day where all of the like middle management folks got together and the senior executive of the whole department was like speaking to all of us. And he said, I'll bet a lot of you sitting in your chairs today want to be me someday. You're thinking 10 or 15 years from now, whatever your own trajectory is, mm-hmm. you like want to be me. So let me ask you, what do you think is the biggest factor that will determine if someday you become me? So someone raises their hand and they say, oh, you know, how the company performs. Or someone says, how our department is doing. And he said, actually, it's you. He said, I can't believe how many people don't realize that you can actually take charge of your career and control the direction that it goes. And I was sitting there saying, well, that seems obvious, but also I hadn't been doing that up until that point. I was just moving within the company where they were telling me to go. And coming out of that experience, I got offered a promotion to be at the director level still in marketing. And my boss pulled me aside and he said, this is more money for you. This is a promotion. It'll look good on your resume. But... I think you don't like marketing. He said, you're doing fine, but I've noticed that every time I ask for a volunteer to do something that's loosely in human resources, you immediately raise your hand. Mm-hmm. Like we needed someone to do recruiting at colleges to bring in new talent. We need someone to make an employee satisfaction survey to figure out like, why are people disgruntled with certain things and what can we do about it? He said, I think you're in the wrong area of this company. Mm-hmm. And you know, kudos to him, instead of blocking me and keeping me buried in marketing, he negotiated for me to move over to human resources. Mm -hmm. And that kind of opened up my eyes to, ah, if you can get into a kind of work you enjoy and figure out what you're good at in doing it, that's when you start to realize how you can make money in other ways than just in a corporate setting. Did you enjoy the human resources part of the company? I loved it. And in fact, one of the seminars I do now is called Take Charge of Your Career. And I, I walk people through this idea that if you make a list of the last three jobs that you had, or if you've been in a company for a long time, like the last three roles that you had, that's in the first column. And in the middle column, you say, what was my primary responsibility? Like, what were they paying me to do? Mm-hmm. And then in the third column, you say, regardless of what they were paying me to do, what was like my favorite project that I did during that time? And if you look at that third column... And for me, that showed all human resources stuff and all speaking and writing. Like I was like, no wonder my boss said I'm in the wrong department because when I think about what I enjoy doing and when it doesn't even feel like work, it's human resources stuff and it's speaking and writing. And the fact that my boss brokered the deal for me to go over there and actually like learn how to do it at American Express was like a real blessing. So there are people listening that are not 21 years old, mm-hmm. right? They they. They get what you're saying. They want to take charge of their career. They can create these columns that you're referring to, and they notice that their third column is not matching up with their middle column. What can they practically do to take charge of their career without 
foregoing their responsibility to pay their bills for three months. Right. right? This is the, this is a critical point because when I when I get to this moment, people say, "So did you just quit and right, like go do right. something else?" No. In fact, um, we haven't brought my wife into this yet, but we were, you know, I just become married at that point, and she was working at American Express also, and we had that moment of. There's a little bit too much riding on this one stock, the fact that we're both now climbing at Amex. But I didn't just quit. I ended up negotiating with my company that I would stay on as a consultant for six months, three days a week. And I used the other two days, like you refer to the side hustle, to start building up these alternative income streams. So in my mind, it wasn't this like big leap with no safety net. Mm-hmm. But it was like a methodical approach to living in this hybrid world of doing three days a week in the corporate environment while trying to build up other ways I was making money. Do you think that if, and assuming you didn't, do you think if you did have a large amount of money in the bank that you would have quit cold turkey? Or it's not about how much money you have, but if you need to come back to the job and you've quit entirely, it's not going to be so easy. Look, everybody's situation is different. If you have family money or you've managed to save up, save up a lot of money, then that obviously takes the pressure off of how fast the new thing that you're doing has to pay dividends. Mm-hmm. So I had in my mind that I had this six-month runway. I had the secondary safety net of my wife was staying in the corporate environment. So those two things made it a lot different than walking into your boss on a Friday and saying, I quit and I'm going to do my own thing. So it was not that kind of story. And I don't recommend that to the different people that I coach and consult on this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. We're going to take a brief break from this amazing episode to tell you about an amazing organization. Kolel Chabad has been helping Israel's neediest since 1788, and they need you now more than ever. Inflation has hit their donation count dramatically. Uh, Small donations are down about 30% year over year. And with all this economic pain, it just compounds how much help is needed, 850 families without a husband. That means no father. There are widows with young children, other families. Normally they get school lunches, and this month they're not able to provide as much of that. We're heading into a brand new Jewish year, and what better merit than to give charity to Israel's poorest, Israel's neediest, They really go a long way in helping families in need. Seniors, they're doing tremendous work. And if you visit kolelchabad.org slash koshermoney, you can see just how far a few dollars reach, right? If you're living in America, you don't really think too much about $39, but $39 provides meals for Rosh Hashanah for seniors in Jerusalem, $76.00. They can create 14 meals for army veterans in Israel that are out of work. If you're thinking a larger amount, say $186, you're looking at two families, holiday baskets. It's wild. It's wild. If you have even more, if you have $1,000 in charity to give away, you can sustain 10 families for a week. It's wild. Um, obviously, you give what you can. Um, small donations, like we say, add up. If you have larger amounts, some people are able to give more. Recurring donations go a long way. Kolelchabad.org slash koshermoney. Hit the comments. Tell us that you've donated. Support our sponsors and support Israel's neediest. Thank you so much for everyone to everyone who has given so far. Thank you in advance to all those who do give. 
We're excited to partner with them. They're a real charity. They're a real good force in a world that needs them. And now back to this week's episode. Tell me about, I know you had a, a point where you and your wife said we were going to seize the day. Right. Uh, I know the story. I want to hear from you. Tell the audience. Okay. So I was in the Twin Towers on 9-11. Um, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And of course, there's like a one-hour version of this story. And I've told it at different yeshivas on 9-11. But I'm going to give you like a much more condensed version of this story. So when we were dating, I lived in Manhattan. She lived in New Jersey. And our plan was we would always meet up at Port Authority. She would get a coffee. And then we would take the train. The C train went downtown. And, you know, for your listeners who remember, the, tw- the Twin Towers was right above where the train let you out. So you literally got dropped off in the basement of the Twin Towers. And on that particular day, my wife went to Pete's Coffee. And the line was, like, unusually long. And it was the guy's first day. And it took us an extra 15 minutes so we weren't in our usual spot where we would be on another day, which in retrospect was was a blessing because I, I have friends who were 15 minutes further into the building that day who mm. sadly didn't, didn't survive. Um, but we took the train downtown and you get off and at that hour, like eight in the morning, everybody's walking towards the towers. You know, no one's coming back. That's what they're doing at the end of the day. And you would walk through the basement of the Twin Towers and then there was a bridge over the West Side Highway that connected to the American Express building. But when we got off the train, everybody was running back towards us, which is a very unusual thing to see. And the only way I can describe it is if, I don't know, are you a Yankee fan or a Mets, Mets fan? Mets fan, yeah. Mets fan. If you were going to a game, it's like seven o'clock when the game is starting. Everyone's walking into the arena. If right. you got out of your car and 50,000 people were like coming out, like wow. you'd be like, what is going right, on right, right now? Right. And people were yelling things like, there's a fire, there's like a gunman. Like nobody had any idea. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I knew we got to get out of where we were. We got out on the street, and as close as you and I are sitting, like, picture that you're one of the towers. I'm standing that close to the tower, and we witnessed the second plane hit the tower, like, right above our eyes. And I can tell you the only reason that we're doing this interview is because the engineers built those buildings to not collapse immediately. Like, if if you've read the history, Mm -hmm. both of those buildings stood for, like, almost an hour before they came down. Right. If they had dropped immediately, not only would... Carol and I not have survived because we were inches away from the tower, but many, many thousands more people would have passed who could not have had that hour to get out of the building. Wow. Um, was there debris falling down everywhere? Yeah, the visuals was- of the debris and sadly seeing people jump and thinking about what that choice must have been like for them, that they were mm-hmm. at the top of the tower and looking out and thinking my best option right now is to jump, like how sad that really is. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up somehow magically knocking on the door of a cab that was downtown that had people in it. You mm-hmm. would never do that in Manhattan, knock mm-hmm. on a cab that already had people in it, but they were like, come on in. And the driver's like, I always get my passengers to their destination safely, don't worry. It was almost like you didn't even realize what was going on. Wow. And we're literally looking out the rearview mirror of the cab as we see like the tower come down and you start to really understand the severity of what just happened. So that moment when you just said like seize the day was like a big impetus for wanting to do something differently. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I've told the nine 11 story, like in the, in the longer version Mm -hmm. of it, very few people have something that traumatic happen in their life, whether, whether it's, you know, terrorism or a heart attack or something like that. And you always hear these stories, like after that thing, I totally changed my life. And everything that I write and coach about is don't, don't wait for that thing. You know, I didn't need nine 11 to take charge of my career. I should have been thinking that way anyway. Mm -hmm. It happens that after you survive something extremely traumatic like that, you you naturally take stock of your lives. 
So that was like the big moment that we said, let's, you know, go in a different direction. So did you end up going in a di different direction immediately? And where did you transition off into? So the first thing, my wife and I got married on 11-9 to commemorate 9-11. So mm -hmm. that was like our little tie back to that day. But within six months, I had negotiated that deal with American Express to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was doing three days a week with them. And those other two days, I was just like tapping into my network, trying to land consulting projects, basically, mm -hmm. of, of the same work I had been doing at American Express to start proving I could make my own income. So I know you've gotten into executive coaching, you write books, public speaking, and I can see that you have a, a knack for it because the words tend to flow out of your mouth more <laughs> smoothly than others, certainly me. Um, people always reach out and, and they talk about side hustles and working smarter, not harder. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, are your, what is your advice to people that aren't looking to leave their job entirely. They do have what they call side hustles. What can people do? And, and right before I came into this meeting, I was like, oh, I'm interviewing Jeff Cohn about such and such. And, and someone's like, just give me two, three ideas how I can mm -hmm. make money, you know, in 2022, especially. It's not like it's 1992 anymore. So right. what can people do to make more money and really work smarter, not harder? Right. So... There are different types of income streams, and I've dabbled in a lot of them, and I can tell you what worked for me and didn't work for me, and people won't have the same results because it, it depends on what your natural strengths are, which we talked about earlier in the interview. The things I've excelled in have been things that match better both what I enjoy doing and what I'm good at. But the, the first thing that my wife and I tried when, when I was leaving was buying real estate. We bought a two-family house, and we lived in half, and we rented out the other half. Then we bought another house and we were renting out both halves and we started thinking, we're going to have a real estate empire, right? This mm -hmm. is going to be like our alternative income stream. Mm -hmm. Until we had a terrible tenant who wasn't paying and we found that all the challenges with New Jersey law of trying to get him out. And then we decided, you know what? This is an income stream, but we don't like being landlords. Mm. And so that was like an attempt that missed for us. We've gotten back into it later in life as we're kind of older and smarter about it. But it's a perfect example of a way that you could be making an alternative income stream. And if, if I could do it again, I maybe would have hired like a manager who would have dealt with the headaches of the property and not had that experience. But that's scary. Sorry to interject. Yeah. That's scary for someone that doesn't have the money to invest in real estate. And then they go ahead and borrow it. And then it doesn't work out. And then there are $100,000 in debt as a result. Right. What do you do with that? Right. So... Until we had that bad tenant, it was working out beautifully. Right. The property was appreciating in value. The income we were getting from the property was above what we were paying for the mortgage. So I don't want to have it come across that this one bad experience means this is not a good income stream. Mm -hmm. It just told us that even though we ultimately sold the property for more than we paid, so we didn't have the situation of, of having all this debt afterwards, it didn't play to our strengths and what we enjoyed doing of trying to manage tenants. So either don't pursue that or do it with someone who's a good house manager who likes that piece of it. What other income streams over the years have you dabbled and either succeeded or didn't succeed in? So probably the most successful one has been human resources consulting. You mentioned that I do a lot of executive coaching. I teach leadership development classes. I do a lot of strategic consulting with companies that are growing. They're trying to figure out their structure and people issues. And that was really about figuring out the skills that I had learned at American Express and could I package them up and have somebody pay me for me mm -hmm. to offer that advice? Like when you're working for a company, you're getting a paycheck. You don't think of it like they're paying me for what I'm capable of doing. But when mm -hmm. you sell yourself as an individual, 
now the person has to believe in the expertise that you have and there's value to them of you offering that. And so I made one big mistake at the very beginning. The first project I took, because I was so eager to show that I could get paid outside of a paycheck, that I agreed to do this hourly project for someone. And I found out that they were constantly checking in with me. Oh, you build 9 to 12 on this Thursday. What exactly were you doing with that time? And, and you build an hour here. Like, what value did I get from that? So I, I learned over time that all of my projects are either I'm paid on a daily rate or like a six-month retainer or just for the deliverable that I'm trying to do. Mm. So if I'm like trying to put together a leadership training class, no one's looking at what I'm doing hour to hour. It's just here's the price to deliver the class overall. And it's been like a much better way for me to operate. So when it comes to figuring out what side hustle or additional income stream someone should take on, you really have to know yourself, right? That's probably the first question to ask is, what is my personality um, made up for? Just because something worked for Jeff doesn't mean it's going to work for Ellie, right? right? And how do you go about knowing properly what you're cut out for before you're $50,000 in and say, you know, I'm just not a good landlord. Right. So it, it's it's not a mistake that one of the additional income streams for me was writing books. And that goes back to that first performance review I got where my boss said, you're actually a really good writer. Mm. So for me, that became another income channel. You you get a uh, advance to write the book. Often it's like a five-figure advance to write the book. And then you get royalties once you make back that advance. So for me, realizing I'm a lot better as a writer than I am as a landlord is helping me like shift to the things that I'm better at. And the results usually match it because it's playing to your strengths. People often ask, what do you do for a living? And then if you ask about someone else, what does that guy do for a living? And and they say, oh, he dabbles in this, (laughs) that, this, that. And it's like almost like a negative where, no, if if you phrase it in a way that he experiments with with different industries, different, um, different revenue streams, and a lot of it doesn't work out, but... You really don't need a lot to work out. You just need a couple of things to work out. And what's your advice as someone approaches different ideas that they may have? Right. So first, you have to get over this idea that the only safe thing to do is to work in a corporation, because I'm sure you have a lot of people listening who thought it was safe until there were layoffs and they found out, uh oh, I'm out of a job. So and I saw that happen in American Express a number of times. I was there for almost a decade. There'd be times where the credit card industry was doing great and the travel industry was doing great and they're bringing in thousands of people and then something would happen, a recession would hit, uh-oh, 30,000 people got to go. So even though I was raised with this belief that you're just going to climb and nothing could happen to you and you're untouchable, I saw plenty of people that it's not as safe as you think. So over time, I have found it to be better that I have more control over the fact that I'm doing consulting, writing, speaking, coaching, I view it as like a pie chart of income streams and I have in my mind a target of like what I'm trying to make each year. And I I use that to determine how much to charge for different things and how to devote my time. Like in one of my books, I talk about that you have 168 hours in a week. Mm -hmm. And I literally think about, okay, I want to put 20 hours into developing this book idea. And I want to make sure 15 hours goes to coaching these three clients. Like I'm very methodical about Mm -hmm. how I spend my time. Quick break from this week's episode. We have Shmuel Shiawitz in the studio. I want to talk about interest rates, taking out a mortgage, locking it in. You know, when I bought my house back in 2016, the rates were, uh, you probably know better than me because I refinanced, so now I'm just focused on the Mm 2.875. But let's say it was 4% or whatever it was. And they said, if you lock in, you know, you'll have this rate for the next 30 days. What does that mean to the audience? And when should someone lock in versus say, you know what, I'll wait the 30 days and see where the interest rate's at? 
So it's a very, it's a great question. And it's something that a lot of people don't understand. And what often happens is when people are rate shopping, which I highly recommend, people should always be experienced and knowledgeable and, and shop around to make sure that you have a good feeling about what you're getting into. But most people don't really compare apples to apples. And part of that is the interest rate shopping. Whereas somebody could be offering a rate for 30 days. Somebody could be offering a rate for 60 days. There's also points that would be included in that. Sometimes it's disclosed up front. Sometimes it's not. Generally speaking, the, word, the, the rule of thumb is you may get a better deal. I'm going to call it a better deal because at the end of the day, think about a mortgage rate as financing or leasing a car. You can finance a car with $1,000 down and pay $500 a month or no money down and pay $525 a month and that $1,000 will just be spread out over the 36 months. So I don't know if my numbers are exact, but uh, that's really what it is. So it's the same thing with a mortgage. You can have a certain interest rate and you can have a lower rate if you pay money up front and that's what the industry calls points. So a lot of times people will shop around, they won't ask the question, they won't know to ask the question, or they'll think like, oh, this is, the, the broker told me no points. No, the broker's not gonna charge any points. But there's a separate charge, which is not labeled as a point, but it's a fee. And that ends up being 6,000, 7,000, 4,000, a certain percentage, a certain dollar amount. And it's not disclosed as a point. And you mm -hmm. won't see that until you get the paperwork from the bank or the broker. So I always tell people when you're shopping around, you wanna shop around, with take a spreadsheet if you need a piece of paper whatever it is find out what is the interest rate that bank or lender or broker a is charging what is the points the fee any fee that has to do with getting the mortgage so the way i say that is also if you need a mortgage how much are you paying how much money is going to the bank application fee processing fee uh their review fee a uh, doc prep fee whatever it is money that's going to the bank that's a fee that's a point put it in the column of fees calculated as a mathematical dollar amount. And then what's the timeline for that? 30 days, 45 days, 60 days. The shorter the term of the lock-in, 30 days, 15 days, the better the bank could do for you. The better the, I don't know if a broker, but certainly the bank. And the truth is some banks, you also have to know, when am I locked in? Mm. Am I locked in at application? Am I locked in? Do I choose the lock-in? Do you choose the lock-in? Um, some banks will lock you in an application for 90 days. Sounds great, because then you don't have to think about it but are you paying a premium for the 90 day protection mm -hmm. when you only need 30 days? And if you actually went somewhere else, you can get a lock in for 45 days with, with an eighth lower in the rate. Mm -hmm. I actually got a call from somebody who was getting a very good rate. And I actually believe he was from Kosher Money. So he called me, he heard an, uh, an episode, he, he said, I'm gonna reach out. He also told me I'm closing in three days. So it was kind of a moot point, but he wanted to know whether he was getting a good rate. So I said, well, first of all, I can't answer you that because you're comparing today versus when you locked in 30, 45, 60 days ago. So all I can tell you is the rate that I can give you today. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, and I didn't want to, I was able to do better for him, but he was closing in three days. So it was a moot point. I didn't want to tell him that um, I need to change parts of this story so the person won't be identified. I didn't want to tell him what the rate was, but I also wanted to impress upon him, I said, well, what are you paying in fees? He was paying, and I kid you not, over $20,000 in fees to get that rate. Mm. And in of itself, it's fine. But his plan was that within two to three years, he's knocking down this house and he's renovating and building something bigger for his family. 
So I couldn't understand why somebody would be paying $24,000 up front for a psychological lower rate. And I actually spent the time, and again, this was somebody that certainly wasn't coming to me for the mortgage. Mm. I'm hoping he'll come to me for the construction, but there was no obligation. But I wanted to impress upon him, don't be fooled by the psychological lower rate. Here's the payment. Here's the $24,000 over two, three, four, five years. And I ended up showing him that, and he went back to the broker or whoever he was dealing with, and he said, what would the option, what would the rate be without these fees? And it was maybe half a percent higher or three-eighths higher, whatever it was. And um, he went with that route, which made the most sense for him. So the lowest interest rate is not necessarily the best interest rate. Mm. And part of it is having a candid conversation, a transparent conversation with somebody who's knowledgeable. And and I'll, I'll tell you two other points. One is, in general, what's out there in the marketplace, I call them drive-through mortgage people. You literally, online or on the phone, you literally pull up to the window and you say, here's my order, I'm buying a house, here's my numbers, here's my credit score, because most people can get their credit score today. Um, so you basically place your order and he says, okay, the rate is 5%, pull up to the next window and uh, we'll, we'll check you out. And that's the drive-through. And to me, that's such a disservice. Most people are really not getting the right mortgage for themselves because they're not having the open conversation about really what they want to accomplish with this mortgage. People think it's just getting the rate and it's really not getting the rate. And and the next thing is um, just trying to figure out that interest rates change. They trade like a stock. So the bond market is open every day from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And... What somebody quotes you at 9 a.m., especially during these volatile times, but even if it's not volatile, on any given day, the bond market is open from 9 to 4.30 p.m., and the rate that you're quoted at 9 a.m. will be different than the rate that you may get at 4.30 p.m. So comparing apples to apples in all sense of the um, in, in all sense of the explanation is really so critical because you really want to have, you want them to have a full understanding of what you need, when you need it, how you need it, why you need it, and let them help you make the decision. And and what I always tell people is getting you pre-approved for a mortgage is a job. It's something that a qualified person should do. Getting you to the closing table, especially if you give somebody 30, 45, 60 days, it shouldn't be a problem. It's the process in between of managing and communicating, but also training and showing and guiding somebody into knowing when to lock in. To, to your question, I would tell people, and I've had this conversation I, probably two or three times today alone, where I spoke to somebody and I said, by the way, interest rates are at a 30-day high um, as of today. He said, well, I'm closing in two months. What should I do? I said, I can't tell you what to do. All I can tell you is, here's where we are. I think here are the economic reports that are coming out over the next two, three days. Here's what I think. And what I would suggest is all things being equal, at least with me, because I have your application, I have your file, I have your information, I know 99% of everything that I possibly could know. So my suggestion is, let's not lock in today. You're looking for a 61-day lock-in. If we can not lock in today and then have to pay an extension fee, I can lock you in. We basically were buying time, and if we don't have to lock in today, meaning if the market's not going to get worse, let's not lock in. Let's lock in tomorrow. This way, you're not even paying the extension fee. So just with a little guidance and a little understanding about what the game plan is and you're just strategizing, you'll be able to accomplish so much more. Love it. Love the passion. 
approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. I'm sure you guys have questions. Email Shmuel and he'll get back to you maybe within the hour. Now back to this week's episode. We had this similar idea in terms of budgeting. We had Stacey Zrian talk about at the beginning of the week how you want to allocate your money. Mm-hmm. So you're saying do the same thing with your, with your hours. Time. Right. Very interesting. Uh, let's talk recession-proofing. Right. right. Everyone's nervous in 2022. Is there a recession coming? We've lived through a recession in our time. Um, you talk about these people at American Express, 30,000 people had to go. That to me is 30,000 families potentially right. that are walking out with their head slumped and, and out of a job. What can people do to recession proof their career that may or may not have side hustle capabilities? Right. And so this is interesting because I wrote a book called Recession Proof Careers, but it was written in 2008. So the people who remember that there was a big financial crisis that happened around 2007. And so the publisher wanted to do a book on industries that were recession proof. But as we worked on the book, we realized it was more about recession proofing yourself because an industry that you might think is untouchable and maybe you thought financial services was untouchable, and then something out of the ordinary happens like the financial crisis, and you're seeing huge banks going out of business. So the book evolved into how you can make yourself kind of untouchable. So I want to share, I could share with you yeah, a few tips please. of some of the things. The first thing is, does your boss value you? And what's so interesting, I told you earlier that I had like this great first boss at American Express. She got promoted and moved to California, and then somebody else came into the role, and we were not clicking. And I would go home and I would tell my parents and then like my wife, you know, I don't understand. I feel like I'm doing the same work and somehow everything I'm doing is suddenly terrible. Like what's changed? And I can tell you for sure that when times are tough at a company, the people who don't have a good relationship with their boss are always the first to go Mm. because the boss gets put in a room with their boss who says, I need five names on my desk by five o'clock. And what does the boss say? Who do I enjoy having around and who don't I? And at that time of my career, instead of just being stuck there, once you hit one year in a role at American Express, you were allowed to move to a different department. Mm-hmm. I moved. And all I cared about was, was I clicking with the boss? And it made like a huge difference. I like rediscovered myself with my third boss from how I was as my first. But you forget how much of an influence your direct boss has on your reputation, how you're viewed. So I would say that's the first tip is make sure that relationship is tight so that when things are tough, your name's not going to be on the list. The second thing I would say is, are you working in an area of the company that's valued? You know, when when they need to lay off people, the first thing they say is, which departments are making sales? Which departments are bringing in revenue? Which departments are improving our customer service? Let's not touch those people. Like, even though times are tough, like, we need those folks. So whatever you're doing in your job, even if your primary thing maybe is in support of what the company is doing, you have to make yourself as, you know, indispensable as possible. Um, does that mean yeah. going above and beyond the call of duty? For Does that sure. mean implementing or or playing out of the sandbox they want you to, to develop processes, strategies to better the company ahead of time? Right. Like they used to teach me at American Express, the person who gets the promotion is the person who's already operating at the next level. Mm. Like, because they can already see you operating one level up from where you are. So whatever role someone is in, especially if you feel like what you're doing would not be like the most valued thing if the company or the industry industry that you're in hit a tough time. Mm-hmm. Add things on to that you're doing, like raise your hand and like find other ways that you become viewed as indispensable. So when they have that meeting and they realize we have to unfortunately let 10% go, you're like immediately put on the untouchable column. Like whatever we do, we can't lose this individual. Like you want to be on that list. And then you wanted to mention another yes, idea. The third one is 
you know, there's like so much with social media and there's like so much talk about, oh, how many LinkedIn contacts do you have? How many Facebook contacts do you have? How many followers do you have? And when all this stuff was was getting hot, like, you know, a few years back when it was really like starting to take off, I fell into that trap also. And I just started trying to get as many contacts as I could. And I love being in like parties and be like, I just hit 500 contacts for this. I've got this number of followers. And I discovered that I was kind of wasting my time with a lot of those relationships. And I went completely the opposite way. And instead of trying to have as many contacts as I could, I focused in on less than 10 people that I viewed as like my my power relationships, like the ones that if I really foster those relationships, these are the people that I could like really count on if something was going poorly in my career. And it's not the same 10 people every year, like it changes over time. Mm-hmm. And while things were good, I spent all my time trying to be helpful for those 10 people, not asking for anything, not looking for favors, not looking for doors to be open. I just tried to be helpful for these 10 people and that like that brings you closer to them. Mm-hmm. Stop paying attention to like the all these contacts that weren't really in my life other than like, you know, quick hits here and there. And I, I'm just amazed at when things have gone poorly in my career, like the time I invested in this like small group of people has like paid amazing dividends. It's interesting. As someone who did get lost in the Twitter following mm-hmm. at some point, and I'm up to 14,000 Twitter followers, but I appreciate my WhatsApp contacts, uh-huh. which is a whole lot smaller than that. And I try to give back, I try to give them advice and reminders just to my status. And the, it's not a small amount, 800, 900 people, but I'm much closer with that network of people mm-hmm. who I'm communicating with and talking to than I am my 14,000 Twitter followers. Right. Which is like a great, it's a number. Right. And it makes you, it's good for your ego when you can say I have this many contacts. Right. But they're not the people who are going to like really stand by you when you have your time of need. Correct. Assuming that they're all not bots anyway. But yeah. <laughs> right. Correct. Yeah. So that, that that's really interesting. So when, when you hear the words work smarter, not harder, what does that even mean practically for people? And then I want to get into two to three tangible ideas for people in 2022, 2023 to actually make more money? Right. So let me answer the the second question first. It it took me a long time to understand the value of what I was offering. Because when when you work in a company, the value of what you're doing is your salary. So whatever they're paying you, that's how much they value the time that you're spending. Mm -hmm. But then when you go and do your own thing, whether it's writing a book or doing a consulting project, the rules are like completely different what you're going to get paid is what the other person is willing to give you. So it took me a while to get educated on if I'm going to put together this leadership training class, what is the value to the client? And that's how I'm going to build my pricing. And that's how I'm going to use my time to get it done. And it kind of changed my perspective on how much my time was valued and what I could get paid. And it also it put me into a different tier of consultant. Like I mentioned when I just started, I was just trying to prove that I could get paid to do something. Mm-hmm. I ended up spending hours and hours for like very little money until I learned how to price projects and how to value my time and to get the person to see the value of what I could bring and therefore pay at those levels. And when you when you hit that, you find that you can make more and work less to accomplish it. So if someone's not a natural consultant, they don't speak well, what are what are you seeing out there that people are doing in today's day and age to increase their income? Right. So I'm seeing a lot of people get into coaching in a, in a lot of different ways. So when you think about consulting, you might be picturing like a corporate environment. Correct. Like you're coming into a company to develop a training class or to help them with strategic planning for the next year, whatever the case may be. 
But with coaching, it's more of like a one-on-one relationship. Uh-huh. And people have such specialized needs these days. Like they, their expectation is that everything can be customized. So if you figure out a skill that you've learned in your job, it could be technology, it could be accounting, whatever it is, figuring out that somebody on the outside would probably be willing to pay you directly to just offer that expertise, even if you have a regular job and you want to be doing it on the side. How do you get started though? Day one, what does day one look like when someone says, I hold, I have a ton of experience in the EMS field, right? When it comes to medical training, I'm number one. I know I can do CPR, I can give classes, I'm certified. What what does day one, week one, year one look like for someone like that? Right. So you mentioned the first thing is what is that skill that you have to offer, right? So I had this like human resources background and executive coaching and stuff like that. So if someone has, let's say, technology type skills that they think they could offer, I, I could do coding for someone on the side. There's tons of sites out there where you can kind of upload a virtual resume of the skills that you're offering and people who need it will find you. And you can also apply for opportunities that match you. And I've gotten like a lot of consulting work by offering up what I had to do through some of these sites. One of the first ones I did was on uh, guru.com. Mm-hmm. And it was great. I mean, it's almost like if you think about like online dating, but this is a matchup of a skill and a person who needs it. And they're brought together in this like virtual marketplace. This freelancer gig economy. I know guru.com, Upwork. Sure. Things like that, where people are, are are making real dough, right? Showcasing what they're doing, um, even if they don't have a standalone website, right? People are looking for these skills, and if you can provide them, you could be making money relatively quickly, right? And and beyond that, when I mentioned like these ten power relationships, after years of helping those folks, when I was then looking to ramp up, you know, what I was doing as a coach and consultant, that's when I went back to these folks and had them systematically open doors for me, either to people or companies. There was a reason that these were the relationships that I was cultivating over those years. What percentage of new business comes your way as a result of these third-party websites, your own website, uh, referrals? Where where do you see um, the, the best bang for your buck? And I, I guess so people can learn and say, oh, I want to invest in those properties first. Right. So I would say it's always easier to get repeat business from an existing customer than to land something new. Mm-hmm. So. The biggest avenue for a new project is someone that was already satisfied from something that I've done for them. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is them telling their friend, oh, Jeff did a great job on this project. You should totally use them for the same thing. So Mm -hmm. word of mouth and repeat business is probably like the biggest chunk of how I get projects. At the beginning, I couldn't get word of mouth because I hadn't done anything yet. So that's when it was more like these online marketplaces where I had to just keep fishing until I landed a couple projects to build my credibility. Do people reach out to you? Um, and ask you to do things pro bono. I, I know when I have friends and, and I'm good at something, they may ask for my advice off the cuff and no one wants to charge for right. something like that. But how do, you, how do you balance the two? So there was a moment when my oldest son was starting uh, kindergarten and the head of school had like an open house for the parents. And he said, you're probably wondering as, you, as your child is at the beginning of their school journey, like what your role is as a parent. And he said, I'm going to tell you one piece of advice. Figure out something that you're good at that you can model for your kids and don't charge for it. Do it in your community as, as a chesed for your community. And when he told me that, I said, oh, you know, I'm pretty good at doing resumes for people, mm-hmm. helping them prepare for interviews, help people change careers, transition to other things. And so I just started saying within my own shul, if anybody ever needs help, no, I wasn't putting up posters, but it just kind of became known like this is my thing. So... 
I've been in Fairlawn now for eight years and I just have this list of people that have reached out to me for like, I have this job interview coming up. Can you help me prepare? Or I just lost my job. Can you help me find something else? So that list has 79 people wow. on it now. And it's like more satisfying than even the consulting because you're just doing it for like the love of the sport, right? Like offering your skill to people who need it at that moment in their life. So is there a way to turn those 79 people into your brand ambassadors in a way? Not that you went into it with that motive, but now that you have people that can be 79 referrals, 79 um, testimonials on your website, what, what, what have you done to sort of activate them into meaningful business your right. way? And there's, if we take one step back to the fact that I was telling you I wasn't raised religious to answer this question, there are two things that I wasn't taught growing up in a secular environment. One was to give charity and the other was to volunteer. It's just compared to what's going on in the yeshiva system where from the very beginning they're being told 10% of your money goes to charity mm -hmm. and, and they're always doing all these like volunteer things in the school and your shul is doing like, I'm watching my kids like born and bred with charity and volunteering is like part of being a religious Jew. But it's not how I was raised. So when, when I started doing the resumes and helping people prepare for interviews, I didn't have this ulterior motive like, oh, I'm going to help this guy because I know he runs this business that could certainly use my... I just answered the call when he said he needed help. But the number of people from those 79, like that you said, that ultimately turned into a relationship that then turned into coaching or consulting, it's been remarkable. And it's really taught me like when you volunteer with like goodness in your heart, not having a secret agenda, mm -hmm. like it does come back to you in other ways. Uh, I have to share this story with you on the charity side of this. Uh, as my wife and I moved to Farallon and we were getting to know Rabbi Yudin, you know, really well, and he was like really guiding us through everything. Um, we had someone approach us to give them a significant amount of money. And you're going to say to me, well, what's a significant amount of money? And it doesn't matter. It's different to everybody. But it's the kind of amount that if you were asked, you wouldn't just reach into your wallet. You'd be like, I, all right, I have to think about this. And my wife and I consulted with Rabbi Yudin. And we said, this person approached us. They're in a very tough spot. They're not asking for a loan. They're asking if we'll like give them this money. And he said, look, there's two things you have to ask yourself. One, can you keep the lights on if you give this money? You don't give charity to then bankrupt yourself. That's not, that's not the idea. So we were like... Yeah, I think, you know, it is a big amount, but I think we can be okay if we give this. And he said, secondly, you have to give it with like an open heart, no strings attached. Don't think this person now owes you or it has something has to come back. You, you give it and you hope for the best for them, which was really eye-opening because being raised secular, like my approach was like, whatever I earn is mine, mm. right? I'm not saying all secular people are like this. There's plenty of people who are doing wonderful things with charity and volunteering. It's just, I wasn't raised that way. I was make what you can make, set yourself up to be secure. So this was like the first time in my life that we just openly like gave something with no strings attached. So two days later, my uncle passes away. And my mother calls me and she says, you know how all these years you, were, you would drive to your uncle's house once a week and you'd help him like pay his bills and straighten up the house a little bit. I was just doing it once a week because he had dementia was kicking in and things like that. He said, well, when he passed away, he decided to leave you some money in the will. It was to the penny, the amount that we had just given wow. this person literally 48 hours earlier. And to the penny? To the penny. Wow. And I've told this story in my shul. I was, I was president of Shomri Torah, and I did this at an at a, um, appeal for money one time. I was giving that speech, and I said, I don't want you to think that whatever you all give right now is going to like magically come back to you in 48 hours. 
But if you do give, you'll be amazed at like the different ways that it does come back to you. And I, I see that over and over again now that we're living like as an observant family, how often that happens. I noticed throughout this interview, you've stayed away from saying how old you are at different stages of mm-hmm. your life. Is that intentional? Yeah, I just think that uh, people get caught up in age. And one of the things I always think about, my mom unfortunately passed away at 67 from cancer, whereas mm. my grandma lived to 101. Mm. And when you think about the spread in those ages, it starts to make like how old you are almost irrelevant in your career because none of us knows how much time we have. Mm-hmm. And none of the tips that I'm giving do I want people to think, oh, I should have done that by the time I was 25, or this should happen by the time you're 40. Like everyone is on their own trajectory. So when I coach and work with people, I just try to keep age out of it and just say, wherever you are, let's let's meet at that point and figure out what you're going to do going forward. Right. Because you do hear people sometimes in their 50s saying, it's over for me. <laughs> right. And then you hear a, about a famous person, you're like, do you know when they got their start, they were 65. Right. Right, so you, you really it's not have, about age. Right, right. That's that. That's so true. Um, so tell me. I know you mentioned a few different books that you've written, and it could be thirty books. I, I don't <laughs> even know. And um, what what are some of the books? And we'll link to them in the show notes that you think people should take a look at. Right. So the two books that primarily have to do with what we're talking about, they were part of the Complete Idiots Guide series. So if you've seen in bookstores, there's the Dummies Guide, which are these black and yellow books, and then there's the Complete Idiots Guides, which are the blue and orange books. So I was hired to write in the blue and orange books. Okay. So I did the Complete Idiots Guide to Working Less and Earning More, okay. and the Complete Idiots Guide to Recession-Proof Careers. But you know, as we were saying in the interview, those books were both done over a decade ago. So I, I think what's important is how they have influenced the way that I'm living my life, more so than me trying to say, please go pick up that book today and, right. and read. I'm, I'm happy if you do, but that's not what I think the interview is about. Um, I also wrote a book with our pediatrician called Treatment Alternatives for Children, which was, we have a pediatrician who's holistic. And so he looks at the traditional way to treat things and then alternative ways. So the book went through all these different things that your kid could have go wrong. And here's a traditional way to treat it. And here's an alternative way. And, and you make a decision. And that book had a lot to do with where we were in our lives. We were mm-hmm. having kids. And so now I'm doing a book with Rabbi Yudin and his wife. They spent 50 years leading Shomri Torah. So we're work, working on a book together, like 50 lessons from those 50 years. Mm-hmm. And that also makes sense where I am in my life. So now I'm doing a book that's connected to religion. So there's a there's a lot of uh, moving pieces and parts to For sure. your, your writing world as well. What would be one parting thought as it relates to money that you think people should consider, think about, maybe something that's helped you along the way? Um, it could even be something from this interview that you want to hit home that when they think back to the Jeff Cohn interview, they're like, <laughs> yeah, I remember he said ABC. I think that people make a lot of assumptions, like I was saying with that pizza story at the beginning, with imperfect information. And one of the ways that we do that is looking at other families and judging how well we think they're doing by the size of their house, the car that they're driving, the clothes that they're wearing. And none of us have any idea, really, how anybody is doing. And this idea of spending your money on things that you value without worrying about what other people will think has put my wife and I in like a much better financial position and kept us within our means. So we mentioned that parental footprint, like that's mm-hmm. something my parents did really right. Like I, they had money and we had a very comfortable childhood, but they always lived in a house that was like one level below what I think they could have done and one car that's a level below what they could have done. And that really stuck with me to not use my money for things that I, I really don't value as much. I like that. Yeah, it's, uh, we say keeping up with the Jones, but in your case, <laughs> it's keeping up with the cones. Correct, so. which I'm not trying to do, and <laughs> right, I am one. Right, 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 right. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff, for coming down. 
Yeah, I have to tell you one thing. Yes, one thing ahead. we didn't touch on because it's it's been so cool sitting on the other side of the table for the interview. But when I was coming in, and I was thinking, oh, I want to just mention that I do this podcast myself, where I'm doing the interview called right. Saturday to Shabbos. Right, sure. Because one of my other inspirational things I like to work on is I have this journey of how I went from secular to religious. And so on Saturday to Shabbos, I interview all these people who have all these unique stories. Either they were secular and became observant, or they were observant, they went off the path and came back. And it's like so interesting to me to hear other stories like my own and what like turned people on to the religion. So I think the OU has been uh, championing that podcast from the beginning. That's awesome. It's it's nice to not only bring guests that have insight and wisdom, but they're doing pretty cool things in, in today's day and age. So we appreciate that. We'll link to everything in the show notes. If sure. someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch? So they can find me on my website is jeffcohenmedia.com. You can see all the stuff that I'm doing and I'm happy to connect with anybody. Maybe the, someone on, who's listening will become one of my 10 power relationships. Hey, so there that would you be go, cool. Right? <laughs> he doesn't want you to follow him on uh, LinkedIn. Just uh, he wants you to create a... A, a real connection, correct? Which I think our society, our generation, is really looking for, without knowing that this is what they're looking for. So, thank you again, Jeff. Sure, thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Kosher Money. We have a few dozen episodes right now, and we're just getting started. So, if you have a suggestion for us, please visit livinglachaim.com. Click on the suggestion tab. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us who you want to see next. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you listen on Spotify, give us a thumbs up there. YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, wait. Click like on the video. Comment something. Give us your feedback. Tell us what you like. Share this with a friend. Especially in this particular episode, Jeff says, you got to look out for your network. So... If you care about your network and you think that they would appreciate Kosher Money, share this with them. Some people have shared it on their WhatsApp status, and it leads to more views, more people being helped. Love hearing feedback on things that you did after watching an episode. So if you bought a lot more life insurance, if you changed up your health insurance as a result, if you started giving MICER, if you did anything, I want to know about it. So contact us. Leave, some, leave a comment on YouTube. Tell me what you did different because of Kosher Money. It inspires us to do this. Putting these episodes together are not easy. So we thank our sponsors. We thank our listeners. We thank everyone at the OU, Living Smarter Jewish. We thank, or I thank, my brother Yaakov Langer, who produces it. We thank our editors. And most importantly, we thank you. Until next time, keep your money kosher. Living L'chaim.